0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
1: Hello. Could wiping out an entire species ever be a good thing?
2: Scientists had wondered what would happen if you were able to create a gene drive with some kind of deleterious effect,
1: And a new innovation in the old mechanical watch spring. If the tests show that it
3: does provide a reliable watch, then we will see what the watch designers in Switzerland come out with with this new form of spring.
1: I'm Kenneth Kukie, and you're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio. But first, fossil fuel companies and human rights. This was the question at the center of an inquiry by the Philippine Human Rights Commission, whose latest hearing took place in London last week. The inquiry is the first time that a human rights commission has heard evidence on whether large fossil fuel emitters have violated basic human rights by causing climate change. To discuss the hearing, I'm joined by Catherine Braik, a science correspondent here at The Economist. Hello, Catherine. Hi. What happened at the hearing?
0: So there were two days of hearings held exceptionally in London last week. These hearings have actually been going on since earlier this year in other locations. And last week, we heard interventions from people from the UN Commission on Human Rights. We heard interventions from people who've been looking at the actions of large fossil fuel emitters. And interestingly, we also heard uh, an intervention from Miles Allen, who is a climate modeler at the University of Oxford, and who's been looking for quite some time at how you link specifically extreme weather events to climate change and how you attribute blame for that.
1: And is this commission set up purely to look at climate change issues and human rights or is there remit larger?
0: The hearing was set up after a petition was filed to the Philippines Commission on Human Rights, which alleged that large fossil fuel emitters are violating basic human rights. The events that led to this petition in particular were a series of large typhoons in the Philippines. You'll remember Super Typhoon Haiyan, for instance, that hit the Philippines in 2013 and eventually led to the death of 6,000 people.
1: So what's being spoken about in the room?
0: I thought the testimony of Miles Allen was particularly interesting. So Miles Allen is a researcher who, a climate modeler, who's been looking at this matter of attribution for many years. So can you attribute a specific weather event to climate change? And he cited a study which looks specifically at Typhoon Haiyan and which shows that basically if you compare a hypothetical world without historical greenhouse gas emissions to the real world with greenhouse gas emissions, you see a difference in the storm that occurs at that time. So so the conditions create lesser wind speeds and a lower storm surge. And it's, in fact, the storm surge that was particularly damaging in Typhoon Haiyan. So those models don't necessarily say that without greenhouse gas emissions, Typhoon Haiyan would never have happened, but they say that greenhouse gas emissions probably made the event much worse. It, It created the scale of event that we saw in reality. Linking those emissions to major emitters is another difficult task. But there are, again, studies there that are looking... So this is an ongoing effort where they're trying to trace the emissions in the atmosphere right now to producers. And those efforts suggest that something like 100 large emitters, which include all of the usual suspects, are responsible for 52% of emissions since the Industrial Revolution and 71% of emissions since the late 1980s. And the warming that we're seeing today, 40% of that warming has occurred as a result of emissions since the late 1980s. So looking at, at emissions since the late 1980s is is very relevant. So these are two separate pieces of the puzzle. They don't necessarily link perfectly. There are always going to be uncertainties. You're never going to be able to say to pin a specific flooding event to a named company. But you're starting to see patterns emerging. And I think that's what these hearings are trying to get at. It's those patterns of linking the emitters to events and to damages on the ground.
1: What do you think is going to happen? Do you think that there's going to actually be any penalty and sanction in terms of linking human rights to climate change?
0: No, this inquiry does not have that force, does not have the ability to, uh, to generate sanctions. But I think what this does is that, first of all, it gives people who haven't previously had a voice, a voice. It brings them to the table. I think it also adds to the discussion it adds to the noise, and it casts a slightly different light on the issue of climate change from what we've had before. So looking at it from a human rights perspective has traditionally been the purview of NGOs, which make a lot of noise, but don't necessarily have the sort of gravitas of a National Human Rights Commission. I think that's really what we're having here. The other point is that, uh, so this has started in the Philippines, but they're getting interest from other National Human Rights Commission the UN Human Rights Commission has sent people to the hearings so that it is being watched at the highest level there as well. Again, I think it's about looking at things differently and making a bigger issue out of something that so far has perhaps not had as much noise around it as it could.
1: This is so interesting. Catherine, thank you very much. Thank you. Next up, could wiping out an entire species ever be a good thing? The species in question are the three types of mosquitoes responsible for transmitting malaria. By eradicating them through genetic engineering, some people believe that we could save close to half a million lives a year. Joining me in the studio to discuss this and the wider implications is Natasha Loader, the Economist Healthcare Correspondent. Hello, Natasha. Hello, Ken. So first of all, what is the technology that is able to do this?
2: The technology we're talking about is called a gene drive, and uh, it relies on our ability to edit the genomes of different organisms quite precisely. And the whole idea with a gene drive is to engineer a really, really selfish gene. And a really selfish gene is one that makes sure it's inherited far more often than it should be. Now, we all have two copies of uh, each of our genes in our bodies, one from our mother and one from our father. And uh, by rights, when we have offspring, they should have these genes in a 50-50 ratio. Now, a selfish gene is really clever because it makes sure it's inherited much more frequently. Now, the whole point about these gene drives is that they drive themselves through populations of species, whether or not they are beneficial. And so for decades, we've known about these selfish genetic elements that arise in nature. And scientists had wondered, well, what would happen if you were able to create a gene drive with some kind of deleterious effect and it drove its way through a whole population. Could you could you use that to control, say, a population of mosquitoes or some other disease?
1: Okay, this sounds really promising and quite excellent, because if we can eradicate malaria, then we'll save lives. So I understand the positive aspects. What's the negative?
2: Well, there's lots of things people are worried about. We haven't actually released one. But, you know, broadly speaking, people are worried that things might go wrong, that you might accidentally knock out a species that was really important to an ecosystem. And there would be sort of negative effects. You know, we've seen what can happen when we introduce new plant and animal species into new places. Sometimes they become become invasive. And sometimes kind of really bad ecosystem effects can happen. Another thing that people would worry about is that, you know, say the gene drive didn't do quite what you expected it to do. It was better or worse. I don't know. And once you've released it, it would sort of essentially go to every single member of that species. Now, that might not matter if you were intending to wipe out that species, that might be fine. But if you wanted to make a more subtle change and essentially, you know, can we control the technology is another question. What people really also worry about are things like how do you provide consent? Now, if you think about the sort of upset people had about GMOs, right, people got really upset that GMOs might travel from the field that they're in, and they may, you know, get into sort of organic farms. And then some countries are like, well, we don't want GMOs in our country. And, you know, there are lots of rules to prevent um, GMOs being sent to countries that don't want them. Well, guess what? Gene drive organisms are not going to be reading those rules. They're just going to be doing going about their natural business. They're going to cross borders and do things like that. And so there's this really kind of complicated question of like, well, if you're going to gene drive, you are going to put a gene drive into a mosquito and then it, it's going to travel across a continent say africa it's like how do you get consent how do you get people to agree that that's a sort of okay thing to do because if you don't get consent and you just decide to release it you're setting kind of a precedent
1: so why wouldn't we be able to engineer this gene not to be say selfish and to wipe out the mosquito but to just wipe out the malaria capability of transporting the disease through the mosquito. Well,
2: that's a really clever idea as well. And in fact, there's um, another group in America that's doing just that. Um, And there are technical reasons why it might be uh, better to do it that way.
1: Natasha, this is fascinating. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you very much, Ken.
1: So what are your thoughts on gene drives or on climate change and human rights? Tell us in an email and send them our way to Radio at Economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And also, as a new feature to the show, we will read them, select them, and if we like one, we might edit it and ask you to record it on your smartphone to send us the audio file and we will play it in one of our shows. Finally, we head to Switzerland and the reinvention of the watch spring. Most mechanical Swiss watches use springs made from a nickel-steel alloy called Nivarox. These springs are produced by a company of the same name that is part of the Swatch Group. But its dominance could be unwound, as a different sort of spring has started undergoing tests with an unnamed Swiss watchmaker. To discuss this, I'm joined by Paul Markley, the Economist Innovation Editor. Hello, Paul. Hello, Ken. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. Tell me about it. First is, what is the problem... With Nivorox.
3: Oh, not a lock. It makes perfectly good um, springs. But maybe if you could make a spring in a totally different way, totally different shapes, maybe lighter and all sorts of other things, then maybe you could design completely new sorts of mechanical watches.
1: Now we've got a backup. So what would we do with this new spring and how is it made that gives it these special properties?
3: This is the result of some work by a group of researchers at a Swiss Federal Research Institute. And what they've done is find a way of producing these very fine springs which have to be made in materials that don't really change with temperature otherwise you'll watch would speed up or slow down as you went from warmer to colder parts of the world. But to do so a bit like the way they make silicon chips with a silicon wafer and exposing it in a lithographic process to build up the shape and form of the springs in a sort of additive process. So
1: I have a mechanical watch and it requires a lot of cleaning and work. What would be the requirement for maintenance or for longevity or for different temperatures? Are these properties allowing us to do new things, or are they simply recreating what we're already able to do with niverox?
3: I think it's the latter, just creating what we can already do with this um, alloy that's used to make most of the springs, but to produce those springs, perhaps in new ways and in new shapes. That could mean a lighter spring. It could mean a spring that has certain characteristics in it that allow the, the movement, the mechanism inside the watch to be assembled in a new way. It's a bit like things that have come along with 3D printing. Once you can sort of produce something in an additive form that is different to the shape you make with traditional methods such as drawing out a thin piece of steel into a spring, then it opens up all sorts of design possibilities. So if this works and if the tests show that it does provide a reliable watch, then we will see what the watch designers in Switzerland come out with with this new form of spring.
1: Let's now, in full disclosure, start talking watches. Paul? Okay, if you want, yeah, yeah.
3: What are you wearing? What I'm wearing is a, is a wonderful mechanical watch which um, looks like a um, – uh, rolex submariner but um, it's in fact actually far rarer than a rolex because um, it's made by a local watchmaker uh, in the small town where i live but i'm not going to tell you his name because he might get
1: in trouble well that sounds beautiful since you you're looking at my wrist i'm wearing a casio databank and it's a prize possession well so is mine <laughs> that's great paul thank you very much for being on the show pleasure again That's all for this episode of Babbage. You can read more on any of these topics at Economist.com. And if you like our journalism, remember, take out a subscription. Go to Economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. And don't forget to rate us on your favorite podcast provider. It matters to us, so please do that. We appreciate it. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and in London, this is The Economist.
2: I have one question. So if you were given the power of God and you were able to gene drive humanity, what kind of superpower would you give them?
1: Well, of course, I want them to vote with reason and not with passion.
2: (laughs) Is that it? Some sort of gene drive for, for voting in a particular way?
1: Yeah, I think if we had better politics based on reason rather than ones based on complete Ridiculous, non thinking ignorance, we'd have a better society. That's a
2: very emotional answer. Thank you, Ken. You're welcome.
1: <laughs> well, wait, so, Natasha, you're not off the hook. Oh, what right. would you code what in? Would to the I code?
2: Um, compassion?
1: Oh, that's so beautiful.
2: I know. Isn't you're it? so much
1: better than I am. <laughs> it's not a competition. I but... believe <laughs> it is. It is, it is. I'm just, I'll,
2: I'll
3: be... Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys. Good credit. If you own or operate a business,